As we jump into the third chapter of 1 John tonight, I want us to think about the weight and the importance of, of, of sentences. And when I say sentences, I really just mean those, those small little collections of words that can actually change our lives. I want you to think about how there are times where sentences will actually carry more weight than entire massive groupings of words and sentences and paragraphs. For example, um, some of you will remember um, the first time or, or the time you applied to the college of your dreams. Um, and you sent in your application, and then you received a letter back, and you opened up the letter. And do you know that that letter probably had hundreds of words? But the only sentence you remember from that letter is, congratulations, you have been accepted, or we are bummed to inform you. They probably didn't say bummed, but, but, but sad to inform you that you're not coming to our college, right? It was a sentence you remember. Uh, like some of you will remember when you applied for your first big girl or big boy job and you really went through the process. It wasn't like something that someone threw at you. It was like a real process that you leaned in and tried to get the job. And you remember the time that they gave you the call and said, we'd like to extend you an offer for this position. They probably said a bunch of other things, but that's the sentence you remember. I remember sentences in my life, like when I asked my wife to marry me, she gave me a one word sentence, best conversation we ever had. She said, yes. Best sentence she's ever said. I remember the first time my wife ever looked at me and said, I'm pregnant, you're going to be a dad. It was a sentence. And she probably said a lot of other things, but all I can remember in that moment was you're going to be a dad. There are these sentences that change our lives and some of them are amazing and incredible and they bless us and we remember it forever as a good thing. Some of those sentences are brutal. Like a doctor saying you have cancer. Like your parents saying we're gonna split up. Like you being told you're being let go from a job. Again, there are all these words that fly through our minds throughout the course of a day, a week, and a lifetime, but it's sentences that we remember. That's why pastor and author John Piper says it this way. He says, books don't change people. He says, paragraphs do. Sometimes, even sentences. And tonight, what I want to give you as we begin the third, third chapter of the book of First John is a sentence that could change your life. I don't want to overstate this. I don't want to say like every moment of every sentence and everything in scripture might change. I think this sentence, if you started to internalize it, believe it, and actually live as if it was true, could be one of those sentences that changes your entire life. Let me show you 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. It says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. To everyone listening online, to everyone in this room, if you believed that this sentence was true, it would change your entire life. It says, you want to know what the love of God is? You want to know how unbelievably wild the love of God is? This is how he lavishes on us, that we are called children of God. Like in other words, we were far from God. We were enemies of God. God wanted nothing to do with us, and we wanted nothing to do with God. But God, in his great love, sends Jesus to rescue us. God didn't have to do it. God wasn't obliged to do it. God wasn't mandated to do it. And yet he sends Jesus into this world. And Jesus comes into this world that we might be made children of God. How? Through the blood of Christ shed on the cross. Like the whole story of the gospel is Jesus sheds his blood so that through Jesus's bloodline, we might be called children of God, where God is our father and Jesus is our big brother. Like this is the gospel storyline. And then notice what it says. It's to see what great love the father has lavished on us. Like you and me. I don't know about you, but I don't feel special most days. There's not a lot of days where I think like the God of the universe looked at Brian Howard and thought, wow. But that's what he did. 
And not just for me, but for you. That's the love of the Father lavished on you, that God from all of eternity past looked at you and said, I want that man in my family. I want that woman in my family. And I would do anything, including giving my son's own life, to have that man or that woman in my family. Isn't that this great love of the Father? This is remarkable. Again, if you lived this way, as if God from eternity past saw you and said, she's worth dying for. He's worth doing anything to get into my family. That's the kind of love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And listen, that's what we are. It's not what we're going to be someday. It's not what we might be. It's what we are. And then what's the command that we're actually told? What's the verb here? The verb, the command, is that we're supposed to see it. We're supposed to look at it. We're supposed to behold it. We're supposed to admire it. It's kind of like this. Um, I don't know if anyone else was like me the other night. I was like classic Southern California guy um, during that lightning storm. Anyone else remember that the other night? Yeah, there was like a lightning storm. We we're like, what? Things happening in the sky. And, and so we went out and watched and, and, and I saw this picture and this was posted by the Acorn, which is the only source for local news. Um, and and, and they, they post this picture of this lightning out there. And I don't know about you, but I like stood out there. This is how weird it got for me. I was just like standing out there for like an hour, like late at night, just watching lightning go over the hills. I was just in awe of it. It was spectacular. Like I didn't stand there critiquing it, not even thinking about it. I wasn't like, oh, you could have done better cloud. Like I didn't think that, right? When you look at lightning, you're just kind of like awestruck by this. And listen, that's how we should see the fact that we are children of God. It says, look what the Father, see what the Father, admire, stand in awe and gaze at what the Father has done. That you, in all of your frailty, in all of your sin, in all of your weakness, in all of your stumbling, in all of your insecurity, that God would look at you and say, it is worth giving everything that you might be in my family. We stand in awe of that. Like, I hope your life stands in awe of this. This is a sentence that can change your whole life. And why does it change your whole life? Because it reorients and redefines your whole life. Like, I need someone in here to understand that the principal way God sees you is as child. And some of you have built up this life narrative where God sees you as this sort of like tag along, sort of like when your family went on vacation and they brought someone else. And it's like, yeah, you get to come too, I guess. You know, it's like some of you have seen yourself this way. But the principal way God defines you and sees you is as his child, his beloved son. And in the same way that he looks at Jesus and says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. You know what God says over you and me? He says, this is my child. And in you, I'm well pleased. This is how God defines you as his child. Listen, this means a million different things about your life. All the narratives and lies that you've believed and internalized about yourself over the years suddenly just get burnt up in smoke. Like, listen, can I just say this over someone? Because you are a child of God, there's a few things that are true. Number one, you are no longer defined by your family of origin. You're no longer defined by your family of origin. Now, listen, you may come from a great family like I did, or you may come from a disastrous family. But I want you to know whatever that family of origin was, whether it was a gift or a curse in your life, that is no longer what defines you. What defines you is you are part of the family of God. So you can still love and care for the family you came from, but they're not the ones who get to call the shots or tell you who you are in your life. You are no longer defined by your family of origin. Listen, you are no longer defined by your failures and your wounds. You're no longer defined by your failures. Can I just say to someone in this room who just feels like they failed more than God could ever handle, God no longer sees you that way. God no longer sees you through your failures. And then maybe this will just liberate someone. God doesn't see you through your wounds. 
what someone did to you, how they harmed you, how they abused you, manipulated, took advantage of you. God doesn't see you through that lens. Maybe you've spent your whole life viewing yourself through that lens as the person who was taken advantage of or the person who was harmed. And God looks at you and says, I give you a new identity, a new name. Your name is child of God. You are no longer defined by your failures, by your wounds. Listen, can I tell someone tonight, you are no longer defined by your harshest critics, by the people who hate you and intentionally lie about you and say things that aren't true about you. Or maybe they say things that are true and you just can't handle it to the core. Like, listen, your critics don't define you. Your God does. You know what the best response to criticism is? It's to just own it and sit under it because you know what the God of the universe says about you. Like the best defense to criticism isn't to like fight back. It's to simply claim who you are as a child of God, to submit to the fact that you are God's child above everything else. Listen, you are no longer defined by your insecurities and your doubts. Some of you have walked into this room tonight. You're so insecure about your body or your faith or your life or, or your talents, or your abilities or intelligence. Maybe you're walking in crippling doubt about your faith. And the amazing thing is God still looks at you and says, you are my beloved child in you. I'm well pleased. I just need to drive this in because I just think there are so many of you across this room or listening online right now who don't think well pleased is a a description God would use to describe you. But if you are his child, he describes you in the same way he describes Jesus, my child in whom I'm well pleased. Can I tell someone you are no longer defined by your temptations and sins and struggles? Some of you have just walked in crippling addiction to something. You have struggles and temptations and you feel like that just owns and defines you. But I need you to know the God of the universe doesn't look at you and think porn addict. The God of the universe doesn't look at you and say, you're the one who cheated on him and destroyed that relationship. God does not look at you and say that person is an angry person, a prideful person, a thief, an insecure person, a mean or malicious. God does not look at you in light of your sin. And it's not because your sin isn't serious. It's not because we don't take sin seriously here. It's that we take Jesus seriously on the cross when he said it's finished. And God looks at you and defines you as his child, not on the basis of your temptations and sins and struggles. And then finally, can I just release someone? You are no longer defined by your accomplishments. Some of you think your accomplishments, how smart you are, how accomplished you are, how rich you are, the car you drive, the house you drive, everything you've accomplished defines you. And God says, in light of Jesus, all of that is rubbish. Can I just tell you, if you try to define your life by how accomplished you are, that is a never-ending treadmill. Because you know what happens when you reach the next level of accomplishment? There's another one still. You want to know the terrible news about humanity? There's always someone better than you. There's always someone smarter than you. There's always someone richer than you. There's always someone better in some way. And so if accomplishment and the things you can accumulate in this life define you, it will be a never-ending exhaustion for you. But you know what great love the Father has lavished on you? And on me, it's that what he calls us is a child of God. Let me tell you, child of God, the one truth that will never change about you is that you are a child of God. That will never change about you. Nothing you do, nothing you say, nothing that happens to you can ever take that away from you. This idea of child of God is not just like a random thing God says about everyone in the world. This is actually a surprise. Everyone who has ever been created, every human being there ever is, is created in the image of God is beloved, has dignity and value and worth. God creates them in his image. And yet the Bible does not teach that every single human being is a child of God. It doesn't. It does teach that God loves them, that cares for them, protects them. All of that is true. But a child of God is someone who has been born again, adopted into the family of God, where God is our father 
and Jesus is our big brother. So child, let me just ask you, like, have you been born again? Have you been born again by the blood of Jesus into the family of God? Because here's what you need to know. Listen to me, family. Family is something that you have by virtue of birth and you can never change. And you know this, right? Like your parents are your parents. Whether you like them or you hate them, they're your parents. You can decide to disown them, never speak to them again, change your last name and never see anything of them again. And they're still your parents. Your brothers and your sisters and your aunts and your uncles and your grandparents, they are still your family simply by dint of the fact that you were born in that family. And nothing you do and nothing you say can ever take you out of that family biologically. Even if you don't choose to act as if you're part of that family, you're forever in that family by dint of your birth. And can I just reassure someone tonight that the same is true spiritually, that when you are born again, you are part of the family of God and nothing can pluck you out of that? Not even you? Like, can I just assure you of your salvation tonight to know that when God makes someone reborn, they can't be unreborn. They are in the family of God forever. Someone needs to know that your behavior, your activity, everything you do in life doesn't rip you out of God's family as if somehow he adopts you and then boots you out for bad behavior. No, I need you to know that family is something you have by virtue of birth and can never change. But then let me put it this way to you, that fellowship is something you have by virtue of behavior and often changes. Like, think about it with your parents. Some of you are really close to your parents. Some of you called your parents today. Some of you talk to them, you hang out with them, you're good with them. But some of you have forgotten to call your parents. I'm talking about this right now, and some of you are like, I should call my dad. You should, because here's what happens. You can be really close with your parents, and when you're really close with them, your behavior of being close with them allows you to have fellowship with them. But you can also kind of drift from them. And they don't stop being your parents, but you start to lose fellowship. You start to lose intimacy. And the same is true spiritually. Listen, you can be a child of God, but not be walking in intimacy with God. And what's that dependent on? Your behavior, what you do. Are you walking in the spiritual practices of prayer and fasting and Bible reading and worship and church and community? Are you avoiding and turning from and repenting from the sins of your life? Your behavior will impact your intimacy. But listen, too many Christians get this mixed up. Too many Christians think their behavior boots them from the family. But no, your, your behavior will impact how close you feel and sense and experience God's presence. But it is your birth. It is your rebirth through Jesus Christ and faith in him that makes you part of the family of God. See, this is the great love the Father has lavished on us, that we are part of his family. We are adopted into the family of God and nothing and no one can ever take that away from you. It, it said this way. I want you to read this quote from J.I. Packer. He says, adoption. Adoption into the family of God, being a child of God, is the highest privilege the gospel offers. Listen to this. He says, even higher than justification. To be right with God the judge is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. Here's a sentence that could change your entire life if you actually started to believe it. See what great love the Father has lavished upon us, upon you, and upon me, that we would be called children of God. It goes on this way in verse one. It says, the reason the world does not know us is it did not know him. Dear friends, we are now children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. We will know when Christ appears and we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. In him, there is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has seen him or know him. Verse seven, dear children, do not let anyone lead you 
astray. So there's this great truth that we have proclaimed. And the great truth we have proclaimed is that because you are part of the family of God, a child of God, adopted into his family, there is nothing and no one who can take you out of that family. Even the scriptures we just read talked about, we don't want to sin. Sin is lawlessness. But Jesus came into the world to do what? To take away sin. So there's no assumption that sin in your life means somehow you're not part of the family of God. But then it goes on to say this, dear children, don't let anyone lead you astray. Like in other words, we are firm and secure because of Jesus and Jesus alone in the family of God. And yet there's this great burden that John is going to have. And Pastor Brian Williams started talking about this last week in his sermon where he's talking about false teaching. This is a burden all throughout the book of 1 John that you would not start to buy into ideas and philosophies and teachings and teachers and cultural moments and winds and movements that lead you astray and lead you away from intimacy with the Father. I want you to understand this tonight, that when I talk about sentences that can change your life, like how great the Father's love for us, that we would be called children of God, that is an idea. It is a truth. And here's what I want you to understand deeply about ideas tonight. Dallas Willard says it this way. He says, there is no avoiding the fact that we live at the mercy of our ideas. This is never more true than with our ideas about God. I love this phrase here, that we live at the mercy of our ideas. What I want you to know about your ideas is that there is no such thing as a neutral idea. Every idea you have, every idea you start to believe, every truth you start to buy into starts to shape and form your life. Like remember the movie Inception a couple years back? And the whole idea was like, we can go into someone's brain and plant an idea so deep that we'll actually change their behavior and change the world through that. And while the, the, the idea behind Inception is crazy, the notion that our ideas have power and take on a life of their own is actually something that is deeply biblical and I think you'll know is true in your life. You think about the ideas you have and the ideas all of us have. They can be small and seemingly insignificant. Like some of you have an idea about how much sleep you actually need. And because some of you have convinced yourself that you only need like two, three hours of sleep a night, you live by that. And you're constantly exhausted. Why? Because ideas have consequences. We live, as Dallas Willard says, at the mercy of our ideas. Some of you have convinced yourself on ideas about food or about coffee. Like for me, I've convinced myself, like I need coffee every morning. So what does that materialize in? I make coffee every single morning because we live at the mercy of our ideas. Do you know that you live at the mercy of the idea of how much you think you deserve luxury in life? Like whatever luxuries you assume are just everyone's got to have a phone, got to have a car, got to own a house like this, got to live in a place like this. You live at the mercy of that idea. But like some of you have this idea in your mind that you must be married by 30. And so you would be willing to compromise on a guy that you have no business marrying because that idea has consequences and you will live at the mercy of that idea. Some of you have convinced yourself that all you need is one or two good friends. And so you never bubble outside of that and you just kind of keep yourself. And I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm just saying that ideas have consequences. You live at the mercy of your ideas. And here's what the follower of Jesus should be aware of. There are ideas in this world, teachings, philosophies, winds of our culture that you and I can get caught up in. Like here's a great biblical interpretive principle. Always assume if the Bible is telling you to do or not do something, it assumes you're going to struggle with it. Just every time you see a Bible commandment, you just go, oh, John is assuming I will probably get led astray by something. And so tonight I want to talk to you about some ideas that can lead you astray. I want to talk to you about some ideas, some teachings, some philosophies that if you're not careful, can start to put themselves into your mind and you will live 
at the mercy of those ideas. Tonight, I wanna talk to you about this. I want you to beware ideas that lead you astray because ideas have consequences. They have a life of their own. And when you are not carefully thinking about the things you have started to believe, internalize, think about, when you are not really intentional about what goes into your heart and mind, it will always lead you astray. Let me give you a few examples. Number one, I want you to be aware ideas that lead you into sin and convince you it's liberation. So a couple of years ago, I was talking to a guy who was married. Been married for over two decades, had a number of kids, then found someone else he liked better. And here's what he was convinced of. He was convinced that it was better for him to abandon his wife and children and go pursue the person he liked better because that would make him happy. He was convinced that God wanted him to be happy. God wanted him to be free. God wanted him to do what was best for his heart and his life. And so he abandons his children and goes to live with this other person. Listen, that person was convinced into sin, but they were deceived into thinking that was liberation. See, see, sin does this. Ideas do this. You don't have any ideas that you think lead to destruction, right? Like, it's not like we have ideas and we think this idea will lead me to destruction and total chaos and misery in my life and I'll follow it. Here's why ideas have a life of their own. Because they can be totally destructive in your life, but convince you, deceive you that it's actually something good. And I don't think any of you would look at that guy married 20 years or more with two kids, abandoning his wife and children to go after someone else he thought he liked better and go, you know what? That's a real healthy, good thing for that family and that man. And yet we get caught in this all the time. We somehow get convinced that true liberation is us doing what God told us not to do. And here's what we need to know. There are ideas in this world that can go into your brain and start to convince you that what God calls sin is actually liberation. I want you to be aware of that. I want you to be aware of ideas that will lead you into disobedience and convince you it's freedom. That'll lead you into disobedience and convince you it's freedom. So, so I think of it this way. So when I was in high school, I remember doing a Bible study with some of my friends. I remember a little coffee shop we were at before school one day. It's early in the morning and we're reading through um, the New Testament. And we come across a verse that talks about being a cheerful and a generous giver. I'll never forget this. And I remember telling my friend at the time that I was doing this Bible study with, I said, I gotta be honest with you. I don't give any of my money to anyone. I was working at the time. I didn't have a ton of money, but I was definitely making a paycheck. I said, I'm not giving any money away. And you know what he said? He said, Brian, like, I don't feel like you should wear that burden. You serve a lot at the church and you help people a lot and you do a lot of good things for people. And I think like giving is about like the whole thing, not just about your money. And you know what? That was like a nice thing for him to say. He was trying to encourage me. He was trying to bless me. He was trying to tell me that I was okay and I was following Jesus and I was walking after him. But that nice thing he had to say actually became really destructive in my life. You know why? Because when the Bible says give generously as a command, I can choose to give money generously or I can choose to walk in disobedience. But because I believed that idea and got it into my mind that if I'm doing nice things in other areas, I can hold on to all my money and never give it away. Because I believe that idea, I began to walk in disobedience to the command of God in scripture that I would be generous with my money. I did that for years. I bought into that lie. I thought it was freedom. I thought it was God saying, don't worry about the money, just have a generous heart. When I didn't realize that I was walking in disobedience, that's what ideas do. And you can really quickly get into a place where you're walking in disobedience to God because somehow you've been convinced that it's not a big deal or God knows your heart or don't worry about it because God really knows. Beware of that. 
Beware of Christians who will get around you and tell you what you want to hear rather than what you need to hear. You know what I wish my friend had said to me when I was in high school in that little coffee shop? I wish he had said, Brian, you're giving generously in so many areas of your life. And I would have been all puffed up and be like, yeah. And he goes, why don't you give generously with your money too? I wish he had challenged me. I wish he had put the idea into my brain, not that it was okay for me to hit the eject button on that command, but rather to bring my life into consistency with the scriptures. Ideas can do that. I want you to be aware of that. I want you to be aware of ideas that lead you into superstition and convince you it's faith. This happens all the time. Like as Christians, we can actually really easily slip into like weird superstitions. Like when I'm walking along, I should always avoid the cracks on the sidewalk. Like, what is that? Like, like I should never walk under a ladder. If I break a mirror, seven years, bad luck. Something happens and I knock on wood. Like none of that's our team, right? Okay. That, 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 that's not Jesus stuff. That's like this weird superstitious stuff that can sneak into our life. And you know what else can happen though? I'll tell you what else can happen. We can start to believe superstitions that don't sound crazy. They actually sound like faith. But like some of you can actually become convinced that there are certain ways you can control and manipulate God through your behavior. And you can start to feel into, fall into a superstition that sounds like faith, that looks like faith, but isn't actually faith. It's the person who um, has a cross around their neck. And they're, they're having a cross around their neck or a cross around their car, like the little rear view mirror. And they're convinced because of that crucifix hanging there, they'll never get into an accident. They'll never get hurt. The little cross is going to protect them. That's superstition, not faith. It's the person who has a meal and forgets to pray before the meal because they were in a rush. And then they get food poisoned. And they're like, that's why. Because I didn't pray that one time. It's the person who walks into a class or into a test or into something important at work and does a little sign of the cross and thinks that's what's going to make them successful. Listen, superstitions give us the illusion of control, but it's not faith. I want us to be aware of little ideas that have seeped into our life. Well, the reason I didn't do well is because I didn't have a quiet time this morning. The reason God's not blessing me is because I didn't go to church last week. You get into the superstitious stuff that has nothing to do with faith. I want you to be aware of that. I want you to be aware of ideas that lead you into legalism and convince you it's holiness. So like, let me put it to you this way. When I was in high school, different friend than the guy at the coffee shop before, um, we were taking communion and I was sitting next to a friend uh, and he explained a little practice he had. And this might sound bizarre to some of you, but it's actually very sincere for this young man. Um, what he would do is every time he'd take communion, he would pinch his wrists a little bit. And the idea was like, Jesus suffered. He had nails driven through his hands. And like, when I take communion, I want to be aware of the suffering of Christ. And so I heard that. And I just went like, yeah, like, I want to be aware of Christ's suffering and like identify with that suffering. And I want to do, so I started doing it. I picked this up in high school. And then it just like got to this weird place where anytime I would take communion, I would find myself doing it. And if I didn't want to explain, I'd do it like under my shirt or, so, you know, like something like that weird. And it got to this strange point where I actually started doing this. I started pinching my wrist during communion because I thought that's what I have to do if I take communion seriously. But you know what the Bible says? The Bible says absolutely nothing about pinching your wrist before communion. I don't know if you know that. You don't have to do that. You know what I fell into? I fell into a kind of legalism, this kind of like other law that was layered on top of what God actually had to say. And I thought that was holiness. I thought that's how I had to act. And I want you to know that you can fall into that too. Like you can fall into this thing where it's like, okay, when I pray, I have to do this. And during the bridge of the stand, my arms have to be in the air or I don't love Jesus. And you start to fall into like, okay, I have to have this kind of Bible and do this kind of quiet time. I have to do a quiet time in the morning because like that's when God's awake. At 6 a.m., I have to do it then, right? 
You can fall into a kind of thing. And listen, I got no problems with you raising your hand in the air or having quiet times in the morning. But if you convince yourself that that's what holiness means, and if you ever do a quiet time at 9 p.m. at night, God's asleep by then, you've missed it. And this idea has turned this holiness idea into a legalism. Be aware of that. I want you to be aware of ideas that will lead you into partisanship and convince you that it's justice. I've said this before about justice. So justice is not a new thing. It's not a modern thing. Justice is not a liberal thing. Justice is a Bible thing, right? So we affirm that here. It's a Bible thing all the way across the board. And yet, can I just offer you a caution? Just because someone is talking about justice doesn't mean they actually care about justice. Just because someone's using the word justice doesn't mean that what they care about is the justice of God. Just because someone's using the word justice doesn't mean that they're not just trying to conscript you into a political party, movement, or platform for their gain and not the gain of those they're presumably trying to help. Be aware of that. Like, just be aware of any time justice is talked about from the left or from the right, where it seems to perfectly align with a political party. Because some people can fall into the idea, well, we want justice, that's a good thing, right? And so they get sucked into the idea of you have to be just a complete partisan, sold out with no thinking, no prophetic action toward either party. I just want you to be aware. Like, justice is a good thing. We should pursue it. But be very suspicious of anyone whose version of justice means signing up with the Democrat or Republican Party full on. It's just not what we believe. Like there's a kind of justice God calls us to, and I'm not sure anyone's got it fully. So we want to walk toward that and not buy into the idea that if I care about justice, I'm going to become a political partisan. Last and final one, I want you to be aware of ideas that lead you into heresy and convince you it's sophisticated. I've said this before, I'll say it again. Um, The Christian faith is never going to be accepted by everyone. And the Christian faith is never going to look cool. For about 250 years in the Western culture, what we've done is been deconstructing and picking apart parts of faith we didn't like. The whole deconstruction thing you hear about all the time, this isn't new. Like in the 1800s, the German rationalists started picking apart the Bible and saying things like, well, we want to believe in Jesus. We just don't want to believe in the crazy miracles. We want to believe in heaven. We just don't like the idea of hell. We want to believe in this, but not in that. Start picking apart and deconstructing the faith. And it's very easy to start to think if Christianity could just lose this doctrine, this morality, this idea, and this verse, everyone would love it and accept it and celebrate it. And I need you to know that is a fool's errand. I want you to know it does not matter what you do to the Christian faith. It will never be accepted by your college professor. It will never be accepted by your favorite celebrity. The idea that we can just change the Christian faith, sand off the edges, make it fit perfectly in 21st century Western America as if somehow we're the epitome of righteousness does not lead you into a sophisticated kind of faith. It leads you into heresy. Like beware that idea that if I could just change the Christian faith a little bit around the edges, then everyone would love and accept and celebrate me. That is the path toward heresy, is the path toward apostasy. And I want to challenge you to accept the Christian faith as a plated dish, not a buffet in where you pick through what you like. I want us to be aware of that idea. I think that idea seeps into our culture in Southern California. I think that idea that if we could just change a few things about Christian faith, everyone would love and accept us is a popular idea. I just believe it's a false idea that has never shown fruit throughout the history of the church. What does this mean for all of us? It means that the follower of Jesus starts We start with the assumption that they may believe something false, some false ideas, and then we work from there. Like Pastor Brian Williams said this last week, there is not enough time in this service to think about the ideas, the beliefs, the teachings, the philosophies that you've bought into, but you need to be doing that. 
You need to not uncritically accept what the world is saying, what the culture is saying, what the news is saying, what your college campus is saying. You need to reject some of those because there are ideas. And those ideas, if you are not careful, can lead you astray. They will lie to you. They will deceive you and convince you that it's bringing you closer to God when it's actually bringing you far, far away. The text goes on this way in verse seven. It says, the one who does what is righteous just as he is, I'm sorry, the one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Three, time in this, three times in this text, there's a reference to the devil. And now I know that in a room like this, there are some of you who, who buy into the idea of a devil and demons and Satan and, and all of that, and there's some of you who think this is absolutely crazy and hard to get your mind around. For some of you, it just seems absolutely absurd that we would believe in something like this. And listen, uh, aside from what the scriptures say, I get it. Like I get how it's just hard to kind of wrestle through this. Uh, and yet what I wanna just constantly go back to is this. I believe in Jesus and Jesus believed in the devil. Jesus taught there was a devil. Jesus believed that there was an animating force behind evil in this world. I've said this before, I'll say it again. It may sound crazy to believe in an actual devil. What I think is crazy is believing that all of the evil happening in the world is random. It's not random. It's driven by something. It is driven by a force. And that force is called the devil. I wanna tell you three things about the devil just to set some groundwork here before we move on. Number one, the devil is a fallen angel's, angel with enormous but limited power. The Bible describes the devil as a created being, an angel, a spiritual being without a physical body. He is not an equal to God. He created nothing. God created him. It's not like God and the devil are in this epic match. No, no, no. God is sovereign. God is powerful. He has enormous power. The devil may be the most powerful angelic being, but limited, limited to what God says he can do, limited to what God says he, how long he can operate. He has a limited power. So we believe this about the devil. It's an enormous power he has to deceive the nations, to kill, steal, and destroy, to stir up evil, which he has done throughout human history, but limited power. Number two, the devil's primary tools are this, deception, discouragement, temptation, and accusation. I believe these four things are the four things the devil goes after because these are the four things that Jesus said we're called to love the Lord with. All of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength. Deception is the battle for your mind. Satan and the demons he leads want to deceive you, lie to you, and twist you up in their lies. More on that in a second. Number two is the battle for our heart. That is discouragement. Satan wants to discourage you. He wants to bind you. He wants to put you in a place where you feel like you can never faithfully walk with Jesus. He wants to discourage you. Temptation is the battle for our strength, for our flesh. Satan wants to tempt you into sin. He wants to tempt you into the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And finally, accusation is the battle for your soul. You know that the great accusation of Satan is that you are a sinner before a holy God and you deserve hell. And the great response from the Christian is, I know I deserve hell, but Jesus Christ died on the cross. He rose from the dead for my salvation. I believe in him. I trust him. So you can go back to the pit from where you came, Satan. That's the response to the accusation of the devil. And then finally, I need you to know this, that the devil has already been defeated and will one day be destroyed. Colossians 2 tells us that Jesus put the devil to an open shame, triumphing over him on the cross. Why is the devil already defeated? Because his one great weapon against you was accusing you of unforgiven sin. And then what did Jesus do on the cross? He forgave that sin. 
Satan no longer has that weapon against you. He has been defeated. And then Romans chapter 15 says, the God of peace will one day crush Satan under his feet. He's gonna be thrown into the pit of hell forever. Satan is living on borrowed time and he does not conquer. He does not win. He does not reign. So we believe in Satan, but we believe in Satan as a defeated and one day destroyed entity. I want you to know the New Testament takes this reality of Satan seriously. And we are naive and foolish if we do not do the same. I want you to see how the text closes tonight in verse nine. I want you to see how this plays out in our life practically. It says, no one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seeds remain in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does, or nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. So what John's going to give us is two types of people, two categories. And the two categories he's going to give us are the children of God, which is what we've talked about all night. And then there are children of the devil. Now, you might think when you hear children of the devil, that means people who are into witchcraft, who are into the occult, who are into kind of strange, mystical, pagan theologies. But that's not actually what the text says, right? There are a type of people who are children of the devil and the evidence that we are children of the devil, the evidence that we are bringing ourselves into relationship with the devil is what? They do not do what is right and they hate their brother and sister. Like in other words, the great evidence that we have linked up, that we are becoming children of the devil, that we have walked in relationship with him rather than in the relationship and the identity that God calls us into is not some strange mystical practice. It's that we start to disobey God We start to not love God and not love others. And I want you to know, the reason we stop walking in obedience to God and love for one another is because we stopped believing the first sentence we read tonight, that life-changing sentence, that look at the love the Father has lavished on us, that we would be called children of God. We stop believing that idea, that idea, that sentence that could change your whole life. And we start buying into other ideas. And here's what I want you to know. If you do not buy into the idea that you are a child of God by the blood of Jesus Christ shed for you now and forever, you will start to buy into other ideas. And when you buy into destructive ideas, those ideas have consequences. Dallas Willard said it this way, we live at the mercy of those ideas. Let me illustrate it for you in this way tonight. Um, I'm going to invite two people um, up onto the stage. Uh, I talked to you earlier, Joshua and Ben. Uh, Where are you guys at? Uh, You guys in the room? hope you're in the room. This would be super awkward if they weren't in the room. Oh, okay. Yeah, there's Ben. Ben, come on up. Oh, Joshua. All right, come on up. Um, I want to introduce you guys to to Ben and Joshua, if you don't already know them. Uh, Both of them are worship leaders here on our team, on our stage tonight. Can we give it up for Ben and Joshua? Okay. Ben, you're going that way. Joshua, that way. Okay. Here's what I want you to think about tonight. Every time you believe an idea, I'm not talking about behavior. I'm not talking about what you do. I'm not talking about coming to church on the good side or doing something sinful on the bad side. I'm starting to talk about what you believe because we live at the mercy of our ideas. Ideas have consequences. And I want you to know when you start to believe in certain ideas, what begins to happen is you drift away from your identity as children of God and into your identity as children of the devil. And I brought these guys up because I want to illustrate this in this way. Um, Tonight, um, I wanna think about these two individuals, not as these two individuals, but in a way that's gonna require some imagination. Uh, I want us to think about Joshua here, and I'm sorry to do this to you, as the devil, okay? 
I'm really good guy. We've just been getting to know each other. No reason to believe that he's the devil. And I don't want us to use this as an opportunity to not take the devil seriously. I want it to be an illustration. Joshua, tonight is standing in as what it means to be the devil. And then for Ben, Ben's a really good guy. Ben tonight is going to be standing in as God. Now, good guy, not God. Good guy, not quite God but a really good guy, all right? So again, we're not, gonna not, we're not gonna use this to not take it seriously. We are gonna do this to illustrate this point. There are ideas that roll through your brain and my brain. And when I start to buy into those ideas, when I stop living into the reality, the identity, and the declaration that I am a child of God, I start drifting from that. And the ideas have consequences in my life. I live at the mercy of those ideas. Let me give you a few of those ideas tonight. Let me illustrate it this way. Let me give you this first one. Here's an idea I believed all growing up. I'm not very smart. I grew up in a household where everyone else in my family was smart. Four four sons in the family, three of them got into like the gifted education program. Guess which one didn't get into that program? This guy. They're smart. They're brilliant. I've got a brother in finance. I've got a brother who's a doctor. I've got a brother who's in like super high-tech coding work. I grew up as an athlete. I thought I was the dumb one. I always believed I am not very smart. This is what I started to believe. And here's what happens. When I start to buy into that, when I start to buy into this idea, when I start to actually internalize that idea, I live at the mercy of this idea. And here's what can happen very quickly. I start to link arms with the devil and the forces of evil. I start to say, this is who I am. I'm the not smart guy. I'm the dumb guy. I have nothing to offer you in a sermon. I have nothing of insight I could give you in pastoral counseling. When you listen to me, you might as well listen to nothing because I got nothing to say. I start buying into this. And you know what can happen really quickly when I link arms with the devil? It feels better to be linked up with something than to be drifting apart. So I start to believe this lie. I start to link arms with this lie. Every time I think it, every time I process it, every time I'm okay with saying that I'm the dumb one, I'm the idiot, I got nothing to offer the world, I link arms with the devil. And when I do that, when I link up with the devil, I give in to this lie and I don't live in the identity that I have as a child of God. If you've walked in this kind of lie, that you're the dumb one, you're not smart enough, you have nothing to offer this world, the only way for you to find freedom is for you to intentionally choose repentance to turn from this idea, to break that bond, to break that link with the devil, to say, I'm not gonna live as if that's true, and to go over to what God says, to link up with what the word of God says. Here's what the word of God says. I may not be the smartest, highest IQ person in the world, but the wisdom of the Holy Spirit of God lives inside of me. And because that's true, whatever you say about my intelligence, I know what God says about my wisdom, and I believe in that, and I stand in that. And when I stand in that, I start to feel that, know that, and experience that. That's what I want for you. That's what I want for me. I want to link up with what God says. I want to sync up with what God says. I want to know what he says, and I want to hold firm to that. I'm a child of God, and the wisdom of the Holy Spirit lives inside of me. So Some of you, I bought into a different lie. Here's this one. No one could ever love me. Because who would ever love someone like this? someone who's been manipulated and abused and taken advantage of, someone who's made mistakes, someone who's done everything wrong, who could ever love me? And some of you started internalizing that lie before you even knew what the word lie meant. You were so young, you just started buying into that idea that you were unlovable because your dad didn't love you, your mom didn't love you, your coach didn't love you, your teacher didn't love you. 
And so you start to walk into that lie and you start to link up and link arms with the devil. And you start to believe, well, I'm not lovable. And if I'm not lovable, then I'm useless or I'm not good enough or I'm just gonna walk in that and start to believe that. And you start to internalize that lie. And the devil would love for nothing more than you to stay synced up with that lie forever. The devil invites you in and goes, yeah, there's more. It just wasn't just what you were doing when you were a kid. It's what you did yesterday and last weekend and the weekend before that. And you start to buy into this lie. You start to sink deeper into this pit. And the devil would love nothing more. And tonight what I want to call you toward is to break bonds with the devil, to confess it, to repent it, and instead to choose to live into the identity that if it's true that I'm a child of God, I am worth dying for. God loves me. He's for me. And he will never be against me. We sync up with our identity as a child of God and say, that is a lie. This is the truth. I'm living in here. I'm not living this way anymore. I sync up. I link arms with the Holy Spirit. And I say, I'm going to believe the truth of God over the lies of the enemy. Listen, some of you have bought into this lie. I'm totally alone. I am totally and completely alone. I'm alone now. I'll be alone forever. I'm never going to be with anyone. No one cares about me. It's just me in this universe. And you know what the devil would love? The devil would love for you to buy into that forever. Some of you are in this room right now and you've just kind of convinced yourself no one here cares. No one loves you. God's not even sure you exist. He's forgotten about you and you live alone. And the devil would love for you to believe in that. The devil would love for you to keep believing I'm unlovable. I'm alone. I'm on my own. I do this on my own. The devil would love to suck you into that and continue to lie. And do you notice when I get close to the devil and link arms, he can whisper in my ear? Do you notice the closer I get, the more I link up and buy into this idea, the more ideas I can start to buy into? That I'm alone and then resentment and anger and bitterness starts to build? What do I want to do if I'm buying into this lie? I want to break that bond with the devil. I want to start to live into the reality that the Holy Spirit of God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You will never be alone. And even if you feel alone, God is there. And I need you to know that even if you cannot believe this, there is a church that stands with you. There's a church that is behind you. And if you would humble yourself and lean in and seek community, there are people who would call you brother and sister, not just random person sitting in the seats. That's what you're invited to. That's what linking up with the Holy Spirit means. And some of you have not linked up with the Holy Spirit to believe that you are actually part of the family of God. Some of you have bought into this lie. I don't have much to offer this church. Some of you look at our talented worship leaders or you look at someone on staff here, you look at someone on stage, you look at someone who seems to be thriving in this church and go, well, they're super gifted and they've got it going on and they've got all this ability. What do I have to offer this church? This is a huge church. What could I possibly offer it? You know that the devil would love nothing more than for you to think that the pastors and the people on staff are the only people who have something to offer this church? The devil would love that. The devil would love if the hundreds of you in this room and watching online think, okay, Pastor Brian will take care of things. The worship team will kill it. And then we'll go ahead on on our lives. The devil would love for you to believe you have nothing to offer this church. And he'd love to whisper that to you. He'd love to whisper to you that you got nothing to offer. You're not talented. God can never use someone like you. And your job tonight is to repent, to confess with that, to call it a lie, to break the bonds with the enemy and to declare with the word of God that every single born again person has the Holy Spirit of God living in them and has gifts and passions and abilities and something to offer this church. And there is no one in this room or online right now who has nothing to offer this church. You break the bond with the enemy and you sync up with what God has to say what the Holy Spirit has to say. Some of you have bought into this lie. God would never forgive me for what I've done. I'm addicted to porn. I keep drinking on the weekend. I hurt her so badly. I abused him so deeply. 
God would never forgive me for what I've done. And you know what? The devil would love to convince you that's true. The devil would love to be like, you're right. There are certain sins that God forgives, but certain sins like your sin, God would never forgive. Or God forgives people who sin once, but not 10 times, not 100 times, not 1,000 times. There's a certain limit where God just kind of stops forgiving you. The devil would love to convince you. And some of you have synced arms with the devil on this one. You're actually convinced that God stopped forgiving you because you kept on sinning. As if somewhere in the Bible, it said you can sin 100 times, but that's it. And the devil wants to convince you of that. And tonight, I want you to break that bond. I want you to confess it, repent it, turn from it, and actually believe in the truth of the Bible that when God says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, he meant it now and forever. That you sync up with the Holy Spirit and you say, I'm gonna believe this. I'm gonna hang on to this. I'm gonna break that bond. I'm not gonna walk in that lie anymore. I'm gonna walk in the truth of what God says where he says, I am fully and finally forgiven. It's true for those of you who would say this. I'll never break free from this addiction. Some of you have bought into that idea. It's just going to be this way forever. It's never going to get better. It's always going to be worse. And the devil would love to convince you it's hopeless. It's hopeless. What could you possibly do against this addiction? You tried before, you lost again. You ever heard the devil whisper that in your ear? Don't even try. Just give in. Why even try? You failed before, you'll fail again. The devil would love to instill hopelessness in you. The devil would love to tell you that the powers of this world are greater than anything you have, so you might as well give up. And your job tonight, even before you deal with whatever thing you're doing within your addiction, is to deal with the devil first and to say, I break this bond, I confess it, I repent it, and instead I choose to believe in the Holy Spirit who tells me this, that greater is the one who is in me than anything that is in this world. Greater is anything that is in me. Greater is this Holy Spirit of God that dwells in me than any addiction or bondage or pattern or issue I am working through. That there's hope. I need someone to know that tonight and to break up with the idea that somehow you can never overcome this addiction and to believe that by the power of God, you can. And then finally, let me just ask you this. Has anyone bought into the idea that God is probably sick of me and my failures? Maybe you bought into that idea. Like you're kind of open to the idea that you can make some progress in your spiritual life, but you think God's kind of sick of you because maybe your dad kind of got sick of you. Maybe your coach kind of got sick of you. Maybe your best friend got sick of you. Maybe someone got sick of you. Someone got over you. Someone was tired of you. And so they just kind of sent you on your way. And you think if that person was tired of me, surely God who sees everything about me would be sick and tired of me. And you know what? The devil would love to keep you in that lock. The devil would love to sink arms with you and say, he's tired of you. He liked you at one point. He liked you back in high school when you were passionate. He liked you in college when you were boldly proclaiming the gospel. But now you've kind of slipped from that. And so God's not really into you anymore. He's sick of you. He's tired of you. He's dismissed with you. He puts up with you. You're allowed to be in the family of God, but only on a technicality. And God doesn't really want you underfoot because he'd like for you to go away. The devil would love to whisper that. And I think the devil has whispered that in some of your ears. And he is the father of lies. You know why? Because when you break arms with the devil, when you confess and repent of that lie and start to believe what the Bible says, you will know that God says, I am your father, you are my child, and there is nothing and no one and no place you can go that will be beyond the love that I have for you. You are my son, you are my daughter, I am proud of you, I am for you. And in your worst moments, in your deepest sin, the thing I hate is not you, it is the thing that is killing you and destroying you. I love you, I'm for you, I would lay down my life for you, I sent my son to do exactly that. This is the good news of the gospel. And when we sync up with God, when we link up with the Holy Spirit and stop believing those lies, everything changes for us. Everything changes for us. Child of God, I need you to know that the devil might be whispering something in your ear tonight. 
And your job is to break that chain, break that attachment, say no longer on that, and instead choose to link arms with who God is and what he says about you. The Holy Spirit of God has something to whisper to someone tonight. And I just pray to God you would not miss that. Um, in just a moment, um, we're going to start singing, and these guys are going to head back, and our band's going to make their way up. And here's what I want for you. Two things. Um, we created a sheet, and this actually comes from uh, Pastor Sarah Serwinski, uh, who uh, is on staff with us and um, has actually kind of inspired this whole, this whole part of this sermon on, on breaking arms with the devil and, and linking up with who God is. And um, she's brought to us this sheet, and this sheet has about 30 different lies that some of you have believed. Some of them I mentioned tonight, some of them I haven't. And then 30 different truths of what it means to sync up to God. 30 different lies where you can sync arms with the devil and start to believe his lies and his malice and his deceit and his destruction. And then there's 30 different truths that are found in the scriptures where you can start to sync up with God and his Holy Spirit and start to believe the truth about you. And if there's something stirring in your spirit tonight, we printed hundreds of these. They're sitting on a table back by our prayer wall tonight. I want to encourage you to pick up one of these. Maybe you could even write a prayer of repentance on the prayer wall. Say, you know what? I bought into the idea that I'm not lovable. I reject that tonight. I repented that. I turned from that. I link arms with Christ and his Holy Spirit. Maybe you would say, I bought into the idea I'm not good enough, not smart enough, not pretty enough, not thin enough, not good enough at whatever I'm supposed to be good enough at. Tonight, I invite you to grab one of these sheets. Go to that wall and repent. And ultimately what I hope for you is that you would live in the reality that you are a child of God. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we would be called children of God. We're gonna sing a new song right now, uh, coming right out of the sermon. We don't always do this. Um, sometimes we'll put it in a different part of the sermon, but tonight we just felt like it was the right song to sing. I want to introduce a song, and the song is called The Pride of a Father. And right in the chorus, it says these words. Here's the chorus to the song. It says, when you see me, God, when you see me, you see my heart. You see me, what? Through the eyes of his mercy. That's how God sees us. In the light of your son, in the light of my big brother, Jesus. You love me with open arms and you love me with the pride of a father. That's the great love the father's lavished on you. That whatever you've done, wherever you've been, wherever you've stumbled, wherever you've fallen, whatever insecurity, whatever issue, whatever thing you dragged in here tonight, there's a pride of a father who looks at you and declares over your life what he declared over his beloved son, Jesus. You are my beloved child. And in you, I'm well pleased. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for tonight. And I thank you that you would love us. That you would call someone like me, your child. God, just repent of any time I've bought into lies linked up or synced up with the devil and his deception. And God, tonight I just want to break those bonds and I want to break the bonds of those in this room. Help this be a place of repentance tonight. Help people listening online to just repent right there in their living room, in their homes. God, I pray tonight is just a night of release and repentance from the bonds we've drawn with the lies we believed. God, help us to live in light of the truth of the gospel, in light of the truth of our adoption. Thank you for adopting sinners like us into your eternal family. God, I pray as we sing about your great love for us, that our hearts would be filled with joy, filled with repentance, filled with peace, that you would call us your beloved child. God, we thank you for that, and we praise you. In Christ's name, and all God's people said real loud, amen. <laughs>